From all the research that I've done about your work, one of your main themes is cultural identity, and you've written about um, inappropriate casting with your play Whitewashed, uh, but your, I, I think it's your most current, Gringolandia, um, deals with a Cuban man returning home after many years, and I think I want to start with that. You're basically, you're from Miami, I gather, correct? Correct. Okay. Um so let's go with where the genesis of this play came from. Did did Gringolandia reflect an actual incident of returning home, or is this an amalgam of what's happening down there that you know a lot of people really aren't apprised of? Yeah, I would say definitely the latter. It's uh, it's a fictional story. Of course, half of my family is Cuban, and I have a lot of personal connection with with stories like that. As does as do many people. In Miami, um, but yeah, it's totally fictional. Uh, it was commissioned by Zoetic Stage, and we sort of went back and forth about um, what kind of story I was interested in telling. And ultimately, Gringolandia is—it's actually a play about closure and saying goodbye to your parents under the sort of under the sort of device of a cultural identity play. It is very much about Cuba. It's not very political. I would say it really just focus on the on the cultural stuff. Um, but it is it is set in Cuba, completely set in Cuba, and um, yeah, it's sort of a journey play. It's a it's a play about a trip. Okay, well, it sounds like that trip is extremely complicated. Yes, uh, well, yeah, it is. I mean, considering that, um, you know, uh, the cruise ships have been have been shut down and people can't just uh, easily go at the moment. Um, yeah, I would say so. Okay, um, right now the United States relationship with Cuba is. Of course, post-Castro, which is what everybody knows about from the beginning. Um, are there many people returning to Cuba? I can't necessarily speak to that, honestly. I think okay. I think Miami in particular, is it's it's very divided in the opinion of, of whether people should or shouldn't. Um, and I don't really have, I don't really have the numbers. But what I will say is that in the past year, I have been twice. Okay. Um what does it mean to somebody who's been in exile from their homeland for oh, 50 years ago? Is, is that the length of time for this character? Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, 40. Yeah. All right. Very long time. Enough yeah. time for significant changes to have happened both in Cuba, uh, massively in Cuba, and probably equally so uh, with the man. Is... Um, my I, complicated way of asking this, but can it still be home considering those changes? Well, wow, that's a that's a really good question. I think that's one of the main questions that the play asks. I don't think I have an answer to that yet. I think I think that because I I am a quote young person, I can't quite speak. I'm still learning about what it means to leave a place for that long because I can't really. I don't have a real understanding of of that amount, that p amount of passage of time yet. That's something that as a playwright, I'm really trying to make sure that I understand to, to communicate the story. Well, I think, I think it's different for everyone. I think ultimately it's the, there is a big shock to, to returning to a place that you felt was your home and may not feel that way anymore, or you may not have an understanding of what home really feels like. I think it gets really muddled for a lot of people hmm. and, and really emotional. Yeah, I'm sure it does. What, what does home mean to you? 
Come. <laughs> well, as someone who has been sort of traveling around uh, the country working, um, I, I sort of lose my 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 grip on what that is. But I will ultimately say it's it's more who I am comfortable with. I don't think it's aware. I, I will admit, though, when I do go back to Miami, I live in New York now. When I do go back into Miami and I get out. I get off the airport and the humid, wet air hits me in the face and the, <laughs> the faint smell of like croquettes hits me. I admit, I'm like, oh, maybe this is what home feels like, even though I don't live there anymore. But I don't know. I think I think it's true. that You know, home is where the heart is. I do think that is true. So that's the closest I've got. Good enough. Yeah, it's um, it's not an easy question. I think it's different for everybody. Um, and we've been hit with so many written ideals, artistic written ideals about, you know, you can't go home again and home is this and home is that and finding a place where one absolutely fits uh, is pretty much subjective for everybody. It's yes. I agree that finding a, a, a place where everything is familiar can qualify as home, but you also said something different. You said home is where you are and the people you are with. Did I did I remember that correctly? I don't remember what I said, but that okay. sounds but it sounds nice. I like that. Yeah, um, the, the idea of a peripatetic home, the, the idea of someone who is not, I don't know, nailed down in one particular geographical location with people who share a language, a, a, a religion, um, a way of thinking about the world in general, tr traditional cultural uh, uh, traditions as opposed to non-traditional traditions, I guess. Um, it's, it's a whole new concept, I think, to be explored. Not that it's new, but I do think it's yeah. something, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's home is you. Yeah. And I think, I think that's one of the things that we come to discover within Gringolandia. It's this idea. And I know that personally I've, I've experienced this, like when the first time I, I, I ever went to Cuba and, and so did, I think if I can speak to some of my family members, this idea that you, when you're in one place, you feel by comparison to the people around you one way, right? Like, Oh, when I am in, when I am in Montana, the state of Montana, I feel so Hispanic. Let me tell you, like, I feel I, I feel very Hispanic. People ask me, where are you from? And with this sort of like glimmer in their eye, knowing yeah. that I'm not quite like, they don't really know what to think of me. But let me tell you, when I am in Havana, I feel like the biggest gringo you've ever known. And I think that's, that's another theme that, that we go into in this, in this play. And you know, what happens when, when you arrive to a place like that and it's where you're from and you don't feel like you're a part of it anymore, what that, does to people how they how they sort of come to terms with that that's a big 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 theme in the play yeah that's um it's it's got to be perplexing thinking having an idea one idea about who you are based on everything you've been in your life collectively up until now and then going someplace where you think you have an attachment and finding out that you may be looked at differently correct correct and yeah. How did you handle yeah. that? How did I handle that? Well, I, I, I mean, I, I continuously handle that. I also, I continuously handle this in a, in a bigger way as an actress all the time, because people always tell me, 
what I am and what I'm not. Um, people who are not part of, of my demographic um, tend to tell me what I am rather than, than, than ask me as far as like my ethnic identity goes yeah. or, or my ethnicity in general. So that's something that I've been used to. I've been dealing with, you know, with my career as an actor all, all the time with things like, oh, oh, great. She's a light skinned Latina. That's safe. That's what we want. Or, hmm, you're, you're kind of light skinned for a Latina. That's not what Latinas are supposed to look like. We're going to go with something that, that we think is what you all are when the you all is so, so broad. I mean, people who really understand Latinx culture and identity know that Latin people come in a wide array of, of shapes and colors and, and blah, blah, blah. So it's something that I, that I deal with every day. Mm. Every. Uh, where is Gringolandia now and where is it heading? Yeah. So, well, it's currently, it's currently still being written. Um, uh, I have the draft. I have a draft actually uh, near me right now on the coffee table. Um, so I am writing it for Zoetic Stage, which is a big regional theater down in Miami. Uh, we have, I think we're, I think we're doing some an early reading this summer. I think, and uh, we are premiering basically almost exactly a year from now. We open. Uh, it runs in May, 2020. So almost a year from now. I think it's got May 2020, and I think it closes May 24th. And um, after it's Miami premiere, you know, we're looking to bring it to New York. To New York, huh? Yeah, that's the that's the goal. Broadway, off Broadway. Well, we'll see. <laughs> What's the development process like? I mean, you're talking about this is going to happen a year from now, and. Yeah. I'm a huge advocate of development, but I have not been in a process that has extended that long. Um, mm -hmm. How did this, how did the project come about? Uh, and to ask a really stupid question, why is it taking a year? <laughs> That's not a stupid question at all. That's not a stupid question. Um, well, to, well, how, how it started. Um, interestingly, my, my playwriting career and my acting career they do go hand in hand. They are, they are parallel and they intersect. I was actually in a production of Fun Home. I was playing uh, Joan in Fun Home at Zoetic Stage, unrelated to anything playwriting. Um, and I was working there for this company. And I just started talking to the team about, about my plays. And, you know, they were looking at what I was doing. And I, I talked to them about this one particular play which was Gringolandia that I said would be a great Miami play for obvious, obvious reasons. And, um, at some point in that, in that long dialogue over the course of a, a few weeks, they came to me and they said, you know, we would like to commission you to write it. Cause it was just an idea at the time I had, I had the general pitch and I had a few scenes and a few things sort of scribbled down a few things written, but it was by no means, you know, a finished play. Oh yeah. And, um, and that's how, that's how it came about. That's how it came about. Um, and to answer your question, why a year? Well, <laughs> um, I well, I do tend to write things quickly. I do tend to pump out material fast, but you know, it's um, it's hard to spend your entire day writing a play when you have to. You I know, know. I wish I could. We learn. <laughs> you know, it's hard. It's hard. You know, I, I have. Um, you know, it's, it's a commission, which yeah. is, which is amazing, but you know, I, I still have to, you know, I've got a lot of bills to pay and you know, I have, no, I have to continue doing other work to, to supplement 
to supplement the playwriting. I mean, it, you know, it is a job. It is, of course, of course, I mean, it was a job that I am getting paid for. But um, wouldn't it be nice know, if it was a job that you could just do without having to worry about anything else? Right. Yeah. There's other things that I have to to do to support myself. Um, yeah. Until until opening. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I think that. Well, that's part of the reason. I think. I think. And then I do think that even though I, some people pump out material quickly. It, there's a lot of rewrites that are that are going to need to get done. It is a it is a big play. It's not a large cast, but it is a very big play. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of work to be done. I think that, um, and I think that it's better to take. You know, if the resources are there, it's much better to take. You know, a year and really make sure you've covered every corner when it comes to like research and and everything. Again, because it's set in Cuba, and Cuba it tends to be very complicated. Uh, Cuba's stories tend to be very complicated because, for example, as I started writing, there has been a big, already one big shift in in America-Cuba relations, right? The, the cruise ships and the travel the travel mm-hmm. laws. So just in the course of me writing it, one huge, I went, oh great, well now I have to go back, I have to go and change the play because because it's different. And I'm sure by the time the play opens, it, things will have changed again. So I think because it's so it's such a contemporary play about such a contemporary thing. Having having a year gives us the ability to to keep it to keep it as fresh as possible to keep it up to date. What's your feedback been like? I mean, how is who are you working with, and and what kind of form does that take? Because I think a lot of playwrights out there who have not been through a commission, okay, mm-hmm. or a development process like this, have no idea what to expect when other people comment on what they've written. Right. Right. Well, to be, to be fair, it is, it it will be different um, depending on the, uh, where you're working, just because every team is, is different. Um, But for example, uh, so for Zoetic stage, I'm, I'm working with Stuart Meltzer and Michael McKeever. And um, most of my sort of note taking and giving, uh, comes from Stuart Meltzer, who is uh, one of the artistic directors with Zoetic Stage, um, and I think we there's there's a possibility we might we might also be working with a dramaturg. That's to be announced. The who and the if is is still um, to be announced, but we're hoping to also work with a a Cuban American um, dramaturg slash director. Um, they won't be directing on, on this project, but they mm-hmm. are a director. Somebody with the experience, yeah. Yeah, someone someone with the experience, but also with the cultural uh, the cultural awareness and, and knowledge of it, um, we we really think could also help contribute. Um, so that's TB TBA. But yeah, um, so in with this case, basically, I'm I, I do my back and forth with with one person, um, with one person, and then throughout the year, I have they set specific deadlines for me every couple of months. You know, there's a draft due. There's a draft due here. There's a draft due here, and in between, let's have a reading. For example, um, maybe it's a private reading. The next reading might be a public invited reading. Maybe just for the sponsors or the um, you know the board members of the theater. I'm just giving examples of how it could work. Right. Yeah. 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 So that's that's how that's how this process is happening. Sounds great, actually. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure it is. It is. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's jump shift a little bit here. Excuse me. Um, I want to piggyback on something you we started addressing a little while ago, uh, and that is inappropriate casting, also known as 
whitewashing, uh, where uh, a role for a person of color is given to uh, a white person completely inappropriately uh, for that particular part. And before we actually get into your play, um, you had a link to and 25 of the most egregious cases of Hollywood whitewashing that when you look through this list, and I, I knew a bunch of them because um, I'm kind of familiar with the subject myself, but uh, some of them were just, you, you stand there and you shake your head and think, who in their right mind would have thought this was a good idea in any way, shape, or form? And you, and you look at the way these, these white actors were cast in roles you know, for people of color, for, for Asians, for people who were non-white, and you just wonder at who was, who was watching the TV at this time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mean, do you want to comment on that? Yeah, I mean... My main thought on whitewashing in general is is pretty – I try to keep it simple. First and foremost, what we're doing in film or theater, it's all make-believe, right? It's all yeah, pretend. Right. There's always this argument of, well, then what's the limit, right? It's all pretend. It's all make-believe. You don't have to be a serial killer to play a serial killer. We hope, <laughs> right? Yes, that, that, is, that is true. But for me, it's about jobs. It's about jobs because ultimately when you give – a white actor, the opportunity to stretch and, and play, you know, ultimately you are, you are taking a job away from, from an actor of color who even today, I really do believe will have less opportunities to stretch and play. There is all the counter argument that, well, nowadays, you know, we're, we're, there's colorblind casting, right? Like we cast people of color in Shakespeare, you know, in plays that have nothing to do with color or race. And that is all well and good, and that is true. I still don't think that the numbers match yet. I think it's getting better. Um, but it's not, you know, I want to clarify, it's not about being PC for me. It's not about that at all. It's about, it's about who, who is really giving, being given a chance to tell their story and who, who will tell it better. Who will tell it better? I, I, I do believe that, you know, if you... Even if a piece you're doing is stylized, I think you, I think you can lose out a lot, a, a lot if you, you know, don't cast it. I don't know if you don't cast it appropriately. I don't know. I'm, I'm just a firm believer in, in equitable employment. It's not really about being PC for me. That's it. That's my spiel. <laughs> okay. Um, I wasn't exactly expecting that, uh, <laughs> which is no, which is fine because I'm, I'm speaking from. You know, a white male cisgender point of view here and trying to encourage talk about this and, and to oh, get, absolutely. yeah, absolutely. Because it, and that's, it yeah. sorry, go ahead. No, no, no it, it needs to be addressed constantly, yeah. I think. And I mean, my, so my play Whitewash, this is one of my, my newest plays that I'm developing with, uh, director Tatiana Pandiani. Um, it is, it is about a case of of whitewashing and um it's actually it's it's a play about a play but it's actually a whodunit um it's a whodunit yeah it's sort of like a whodunit classic uh play that takes place in one night and it is it is uh about a a production of it's about a production of the play bad jews um which i have done as an actress a couple of times and um 
it's a play a product it's a play about a production of bad Jews in which the lead actress who they have cast to play the main the main Jewish character who is who is described very specifically and physically in in the play she uh, she walks after the first uh, week and a half rehearsal and uh, she disappears and so the play is about the white male director who has to uh, who has to replace her and what happens uh, what happens as a result mm. so the actor just walked no word yeah. no nothing correct wow. just disappears all of her all of her things are gone from company housing her car is gone her things are gone she's just gone how long before the play goes up i mean the play within the play yeah uh four days to really high mistakes <laughs> oh so we got four days okay. to find an actress who's who's done the play before mm -hmm. that's got to be tricky yes talk about a rock and a hard place so this play is also in development Correct. Um, You're correct. busy. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm very, very grateful and very lucky to be busy. That's what I'll say about being busy. <laughs> I'm very grateful. Um, yeah, we are uh, actually this this weekend on Saturday. It's Wednesday. It's June. It's 2019. Great. Um, uh, this weekend we are developing. We're doing a, a little workshop and a reading at the Timucua Arts Foundation in Orlando, Florida. Okay. So we're going down to Orlando, and we're going to do a reading on Sunday, 7, We'll see. Uh, we'll see. This is, you know, this is a tough play. I will say, it's, um, and what I mean by tough is, people are going to have strong reactions to it one way or the other. It's. I think it might be hard to stay in the middle as an audience member mm -hmm. in the middle of the core argument. I think. Well, we're going to find out. We don't really know yet, but that's my speculation. Well, people uh, love to have opinions about uh, tricky subjects. They do, and it and it is very tricky. Um, it's. Yeah, it also deals. <clears throat> excuse me. It also deals a little bit with um, sexuality in the workplace. I don't mean I don't mean sexual identity in the workplace. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it goes. It deals with a little bit of sexual harassment in the workplace, and you know, in the entertainment industry. That's also sort of tied into the core of of the play as well. You threw a few things into this, didn't you? Just just a few. <laughs> You've worked with, uh, you mentioned you're working with Tatiana Pandiani on this. Yeah. Yeah. You've worked yeah, with she, her before, correct? For, was, uh, wait a minute, wait a minute, was it um, Dyke? Yes, Dyke, yes. Okay, so um, you two know each other and she knows your work and. and correct. Yeah, all right. Correct, yeah. She did, um, she did my play Dyke uh, as her 2050 fellowship, I think, which I think is the culminating final project uh, for her fellowship at the New York Theatre Workshop. Mm hmm. Um, so uh, we did that, and then we did a developmental production uh, in Urbanite at Urbanite Theater in Sarasota, Florida. Um, it was a really great production. Yeah, Dyke is a it's a four a four person a four a person cast four young young females, and it deals with uh, very simply it deals with religion and sexuality and religion uh, in millennials. 
yeah, so Tatiana has helped me extensively work on that play, and and that's another play uh, she and I are also sort of still pitching around and and throwing out there and trying to uh, trying to get out there. Good luck with that. That's the hardest Thank part you. of the business. It is. Yeah, uh, you wrote that quote. Some of my plays are violently different from each other. Now that is a unique and to me unexpected choice of adjective um can you give us some idea of what you mean by violent sure i think that for me as a writer it's important that you know when someone sees one of your plays and then they see another one of your plays they don't necessarily go oh yeah this is a hannah play oh yeah i get it like i get how these are these are similar um i have i have several plays that that are I use the term violently different from each other because as far as form goes, um, you, my goal with some of them really are to not be able to, uh, to, to not be, to be able to, to be able to distinguish my writer voice. So it doesn't sound the same in every play. That's, that's a goal I have. They, my writer voice is similar, um, between some plays, I would say like between, I have a play called BitCon between BitCon and another one, you know, the writer voice is kind of similar, but Dyke and, for example, my play Grey Mare are completely different. Uh, the the writer voice is, I tried to completely exterminate my writer voice between the two. And so that's what I mean. That's what I mean. So that the, each play doesn't have the same vibe, the same feel, even if the plays have overlapping themes. That's something that I, that I really, that's important to me personally. I don't think, yeah. I don't think every writer needs to adhere to that. I think every writer is, you know, um, is free to free to do whatever they want. But for me, that's something I try to um, maintain. So, um, so yeah, and that's something that I think that I that I, I've been trying to push a lot more lately. That, that can't be easy. I, it, I know when when I write plays, I try and not do something at least thematically that mm-hmm. I've done before. But I still find myself dipping into my usual bag of verbal mm-hmm. tricks, um, whether it's going to be puns, whether it's going to be vernacular, whether it's going to be slang, whether it's going to be overlapping dialogue. There are a number of tools in my toolbox, and I tend to reuse them at times. So how are you actually trying I mean, to change your initial voice? Is that what you're getting at? Um, what I'm getting at, well, I would say that I'm trying to treat some of my plays as sort of like capsuled worlds, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Sort of like, yeah. like worlds that are in their own bubbles. The rules work differently in this bubble from the other bubble. Okay. Yeah. All right. I, I totally appreciate that. Not an easy thing to do. No. I mean, I think sometimes what you're describing about how you find yourself sort of going back to similar things. I think, I think if, well, for me personally, if I find that I am doing that, it means that I haven't flushed out that theme. I haven't written enough about it. It means that maybe there are more plays that are, that have the same writer voice. Maybe there are, um, or maybe, maybe it is in one piece and it just needs to be explored deeper. I know that I, for example, I have so much to say about, mixed identity and, and mixed Latin identity that I've always known that like one play isn't enough. Like Gringolandia is, is not going to, be, I have a lot more to explore 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I have I have one other sort of uh, I want to do a, a Cuba trilogy, and I have one of these plays already written. Gringolandia is the second, and there is a third unwritten that is just uh, an I an idea um, because I know I have so much more to to explore, and and it's not just um, it's not just regulated to one story. Sure. It's a huge subject and an extremely meaningful one, not just to you, but to, to all the people from whom this play comes, you know, all the people who, who are the basis for these plays. And, and I can't see one play covering the subject. No, no, no. It's, it's too, it's too broad and it's too broad and it's too, I think, relatable for even people who aren't, Hispanic, I think, I think even if you are an immigrant or you are the child of immigrants, even if they are not Hispanic immigrants, I think there will be a lot of, um, a lot of overlap. And, and yeah, and I think with that place specifically too, I think people who aren't Hispanic or who have no connection to the immigrant or assimilation experience, they're going to see it and go, oh, this is just a play about a family. I get it. I have a family (laughs) or I had a family. Oh, I get it. Yeah. Plain and simply. Do you, do you find that people tend to look for the simple and shy away from the complex? Because it sounds like what you're doing is exploring the complexity. And A, that makes your work much, much harder. Uh, not only in the writing, but I think also in the eventual acceptance of that. It, it, do people want to think that hard and has that worked against you? Right. Well, I don't think, I don't think you have to think that hard. I think that, and I, I do believe that, um, no, I don't think, I feel like, I think some people do want to think that hard. I think some people don't want to think at all when they go to the theater. So I think that your job as a playwright, and this is what I, what I believe I, I do is to create a story that, that allows for both. You can go and see my play and you can get it. You can you can lean in, and you can really get everything, <laughs> everything that's going on, every complicated question, every every plot turn, and and walk out and go, wow, I have been an intellectual today. I'm so proud of myself as an audience member. <laughs> or or you can go, wow, I'm really enjoying these people, um, oh, this this argument, or I'm really enjoying this spectacle, or I'm really enjoying. The, this this image or this you know maybe I didn't really get this and then get this but boy I like it when people you know when people tell jokes or fight or you know just simple simple stuff I do think that I try to give everyone something in my place and I think that's what that's what a good play does but I try not to but I also think it's important not to the play needs to be what it needs to be and if you try and make it something it's not if you fight it yeah you're gonna you're gonna it's not going to be not going to be good. It's like getting a person to try and change who they are just to fit in. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't work that way. Everybody knows, well, a lot of people know it's phony and you know it's phony and you're not happy with it. Yeah. And that yeah. just colors everything you do from then on because if you can, you know, it's change it to make it fit then instead of letting it be mm. what it needs yeah, to absolutely. be. Plays grow up yeah. to be certain uh, unique identities. They do. Yeah. And I think that also within a play, and again, depending on its, its capsule, its own world, I think that there, there can be a lot of, um, 
you know, for example, like when I'm writing something that, that tends to be, you know, uh, I don't, it's hard sometimes to classify if, uh, if one of my plays is a dark comedy, if it's a comedy, because I believe, for example, in writing in general and storytelling, like, you know, nothing makes the dark darker than, than light. Right. You know, so mm-hmm. in my darkest play, I promise you, I will have many, many jokes because I just think it's, I just think it's more effective. So, so as far as, you know, if I say I'm going to write this really intense, this really intense, dark piece, because that's what I think people will want to see. I'm setting myself up for failure. If I do that, if I feel, if I feel like I know that the audience is going to need a a light release, that's, that's what needs to be there. So again, that, 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 um, sort of battle between what you think your audience wants and what you just need to do and what you, what feels, what feels natural. Yeah. It's a constant, it's a constant issue worrying about if, Oh God, is it going to be marketable? If, if I don't worry about the audience, I struggle with that a lot. I have given up trying to wonder if it's marketable. I just let the play be what the play needs to be. And it ends up telling me the tone is it's going to be a comedy. It's going to be funny. Is it not going to be a comedy? Um, but, I want to talk about your idea of comedy because you've written a novel. <clears throat> Trains, I have. Go, yes, trains go to hell faster. I, I love trains the title; that's great. Um, but the tagline is: "An impoverished college student accidentally kills a car full of sorority girls when a prank goes too far." A bleeped-up adventure comedy. Yeah. Could you explain your idea of comedy, please? <laughs> Yeah, because um, I think so, I like it. I'm just not sure. Yeah, yeah. So the novel, so the novel is called Trains to Hell Go Faster, and it is, yeah, it is. It's just a, it's just a messed up comedy, man. It really is. Um, it is. I've sort of taken a classic adventure structure, like if you think about classic adventure sort of journey stories, you think a lot of like pirate movies, sort of um, while like sort of westerns have a similar. Um, we start here, we go somewhere else, we, we end somewhere else, or we end right where we started. Um, yeah, it's, it's the most, dare I say it's the most, um, I don't want to say it's the most millennial thing I've written, but it's about, yeah, it's about being in college and being up to your uh, cojones in debt. And this sort of question that a lot of my contemporaries are asking now, which is like, is it? worth the financial calamity this may cause me in the future and how college really can um, affect our lives in that way. Don't get me wrong. I'm by no means anti-education. I don't, I don't ever want anyone to think that. Well, um, education is not limited to college. Correct. Correct. Exactly. And that's one of the things that, that the novel deals with. But to get back to your question about what is my idea of comedy... I mean, something, I mean, I guess a lot of things make me laugh, George. I, I might have a really screwed up sensibility. Um, but ultimately, what's comedy? Something that I think is going to make me laugh. I mean, I think that the humor in a lot of my pieces, specifically in the novel, in the novel, they range from highbrow humor to the most vile toilet humor you can muster. And I think having that... Um, having that range yeah. within a piece, within a story, if it calls for it, is important. Right? I mean, it's think about 
Shakespeare, I'm not comparing myself to Shakespeare, but what I mean is, you know, he has the most incredible, incredible literary wordplay and like hilarious mm -hmm. text-based humor. And then he has like a fart joke. And I apologize for getting the title of your novel wrong. Uh, my, okay. Uh, my typing is not what it should be. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, okay, let's, let's kick back to... Uh, um, Playwriting, because uh, I got a couple more questions here, and we we were talking about development before, and it's, I just want to make this a quick question. Your your play Ash in Johannesburg, which you wrote a while back, yeah. um, you wrote that you had over eight drafts of this while it was in development. Now, um, how does how do you go through eight drafts and B how different was the play when it ended up than what you had originally conceived? Mm -hmm. um, well, I will say that with Ash and Johannesburg, which is, um, it's a, uh, it's a period, well, period piece set in the seventies. That probably mm -hmm. is really shocking to hear for some people. Um, but it's, uh, a play about Arthur Ashe, the tennis player, um, his, his, uh, one of his trips to, uh, South Africa during apartheid. And so one of the basic reasons why there are so many drafts is because I had to do a crazy amount of research. Um, I watched every, I mean, I've read, I have a stack of books I read. I've seen every documentary between the Arthur Ashe research and the gener general South African history research I've done. It took a long time. And every time I would work on a draft and I'd continue reading source material, I would discover something that, that, would have to change something I had written in the play or I would have to add something or, or consider it. So because it was a truly a research play and a historical, um, biography, biography play, it, mm -hmm. it took a lot of drafts, a lot of drafts. And honestly, I think that there's probably it's, it's premiered already, but I, I, I bet that I could still change it, <laughs> uh, based on research, uh, alone, not based on like, um, Sure. Dramaturgic need or or you know theatrical necessity. I'm just talking about based on research. Yeah. No, with every decade we pass, we have more access to facts. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's and historical plays are notorious for being probably the most difficult to write, specifically due to the fact that you have to do the research. Yeah. Yeah. And there's nobody there to tell you how to do the research. So you have to kind of muddle through bumping your head into closets and things like that, trying to find books. Exactly. Exactly. And, um, yeah, I actually think that if, um, if the play were to go somewhere else, I think I would sort of want to do a round two of research and probably work with a, either an Arthur Ashe expert or a South Africa, South African, um, researcher, uh, to, mm. to sort of, to sort of, uh, to see what else we could find along the yeah. way. Cool. You take on a lot of difficult subjects here. I do. Good. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, I, I love that. Um, okay. So I'm, now I'm going to go with a, a, a real easy question. Uh, why playwriting? Why did you start playwriting? And it's, did you have a background in theater? Was there some moment in your life where it occurred to you, Hey, I might be good at this. Huh. Or I might like to do this. Whether or not you're good at something is kind of, you know, subjective. Right. Huh. I don't really think I've thought about that before. <laughs> um, we can wait. Well, 
It, well, yeah. I mean, what I, what I will say is it, it started in high school. I went to New World School of the Arts high school in Miami. And uh, uh, my two playwriting teachers, uh, I think I think I had – well, I had Marco Ramirez first, I think first. And then uh, Terrell Alvin McCraney was my second playwright teacher mm. there in high school. And so that's when it started. And, I, yeah, I was writing – I was writing plays in high school. Um yeah, that's that's all I've got for you. I never really <laughs> think I had an aha moment. I think I was always writing, even when it wasn't plays, or you know, I was always writing. And I had a gr- an amazing educa- uh, public school as- education at New Orleans. Yeah. And even my like creative writing, my regular creative writing classes were incredible. Were incredible. So I was always I was always dabbling. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Sounds like you had a good background for that. Um, <clears throat> let's see. What would you like to see happen in the world of theater in the next 10 years? And what role would you like to play in such changes? Oh, you're going to hit me with the big yeah, yeah, but This is, I saved it. This is in, this is in cap letters, huge concept questions, right. you know, uh, for when my guests are hopefully warmed up. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm warm. I'm warm. Um, <laughs> Well, I think so. The first part of the question was, "What do I want to see happen in the next yeah. ten years?" Okay. Um, well, I think I'm starting to see what I want to happen happening. Uh, I think a show like Hades Town is a kind of example of what I would have what I would have tried to describe before it existed. Mm-hmm. I don't think I would have described it as well, but I think that would have been what I was thinking about. So I think that's an example of what I what I, what I want there to be more of taking steps down that direction. Um, not limited to that, to that kind of piece, obviously, but that's, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what, that's, this is where we need to go. Um, that's my vague answer to the first part of the question. And the second part of the question was, what was it again? What role would you like to play in such changes that you have just described? How do you want to be involved? Oh, I would like to be, uh, I would like to be at the, I don't know, at the, at the a creator of, of something like that, of, yeah, I would like to be creating content and, and I would like to be, um, I would like to be in content as well. I'm, I'm not a fan of, of doing my own plays early on in their process. I'm not a fan of doing first productions of them, but, which is sort of why I lead with creating them first and, and sitting on the sidelines, you know, sitting in the audience. So yeah, creating, creating the content. Okay. Well, it seems like you're already well on the road to doing that in the first place. I I hope so. (laughs) Yeah. Um, how important is it to you to, to sit on the sidelines and let others tinker, play, experiment, mess with, um, take your words and your structure and your play and bring it into their bounce playroom and have a go with it? Well, it's an important, it's an important skill to learn as a playwright because it is inevitable. So just for one thing, you, you've got to learn how to let people do that because it's going to happen. You're not going to be involved in every production and every reading in every, you know, so you have to, you simply have to learn how to do that. Um, and then I think is also important 
because if the people tinkering are artists you trust, people you trust, and whose whose work and whose opinions you trust, they want to make the play better. <laughs> they want to make the play better. They probably don't want to make your play worse. So odds are, if it's a person you trust, you should listen to them. Not everybody, not no, not everybody who who contributes. You may secretly not value their opinion. You may not think they're any good. Yeah. You might have to work with them. And that's also a skill that you have to learn how to do. Oh, that's a critical skill. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> how to navigate that. Thank you very much. I'm going to write that down. <laughs> uh, yeah, unfortunately, not, not everybody sees it that way, but everybody's creative process is different. Hey, this has been fun. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time and, and being a guest on, on my lowly, humble podcast. Tell my audience uh, where they can find out more about you because it seems like you've got so much going on and there's, there's so much to find out. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I have uh, my writer site is hannahbenitezwriter.com and my uh, performer site is hannahbenitez.com. There you go, plain and simple. Very simple. That's, that's good. Even I can remember that. Yeah. Hannah, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Hey kids, thanks for listening to Onstage Offstage. Onstage Offstage is produced monthly and all of our shows can be found at onstageoffstage.org and also on iTunes. If you enjoy what we do, please recommend us to your friends. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at OnOffStage. And if you are a theater artist with an upcoming project of interest or work in a part of theater we haven't covered yet or know of someone in the theater world... Who'd make some great chat? Please send us a note at info at onstageoffstage.org. Onstage Offstage believes in and advocates for a world where all people are free to live their lives as they wish, in peace and without fear. We believe in universal respect, diversity, and equality in all areas of life for all people, no matter what their nationality, race, religion, age, sexual status, or gender. Onstage Offstage will never promote or endorse those who seek to diminish others because of who they are. I'm George Sapio. Thank you once again, and happy theatering to all of you. <laughs>